welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. Back in the spring, I watched The Scary of 61st through the Berlin Film Festival, where it had its world premiere. I had to watch it on my laptop, holed up at home, with pandemic anxiety in the air. Somehow the mood was appropriate for experiencing the film, which tells a wild story that's lurid, funny, unnerving, and often over the top all of which is a perfect match for the frenzied state of its main characters. Two roommates who unwittingly move into a New York apartment once owned by Jeffrey Epstein. They end up haunted by the Epstein saga of human trafficking and unfathomable corruption. One roommate undergoes a kind of possession, and her friend becomes obsessed with the Epstein case after a stranger comes knocking and talking of conspiracy theories. The director of The Scary of 61st is Dasha Nekrasova. She also plays The Strange Visitor, opposite her co-writer, Madeline Quinn, and Betsy Brown. You probably know Dasha already from her co-hosting Red Scare, the enormously popular podcast. Her other work as an actress spans from a terrific indie called Wobble Palace from a few years back to the latest season of Succession. When I was offered the opportunity to talk with Dasha, I couldn't pass it up. We focused on what she's been watching during the pandemic, which tied in a little bit with The Scary of 61st. In that sense, it's a fairly traditional episode of The Last Thing I Saw, though not without its surprises. For example, I definitely didn't predict the director who has been a major source of comfort movies for her. Her movie, The Scary of 61st, opens in New York on December 17th, after a run on December 2nd in L.A., Welcome. Thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Of course. Of course, you have The Scary of 61st will be coming out yeah. in December. And then, of course, I saw that just recently you did uh, a live recording of Red Scare with one of my favorites, as for many people, uh, John Waters. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. <laughs> so you must have been seeing a few of his movies uh, before that. Yeah, actually. Well, I've seen, I'm a huge John Waters fan. Um, but I realized I actually had never seen Crybaby. Oh. Um, and so I did, I watched Crybaby most recently. Yeah, that has a, um, the, the hair, the hair alone in that should, should get some sort of award. Amazing, yeah. And we did, we asked him about Johnny Depp on the, on the show. <laughs> I don't know where, where you want to start. I mean, typically what we just do is just sort of go through what, you, what you've been watching and, and, you know, how you came to it. I, I found an interview with you uh, sort of mid-pandemic uh, uh-huh. that, I, that I sort of related to uh, just in terms of, you know, the importance in New York of having these outdoor spaces, uh, or rather having these like neutral spaces where you can go, rest- yeah. restaurants and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> movie theaters. And movie theaters, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know, are you, are you going to movie theaters at this point or is it all streaming or... Well, I don't have like a projector or like a TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I watch movies at home, I watch them on my laptop, which isn't really my preference. So, so yeah, so I go, I go to the movies if I can. Yeah. No, I, I end up doing that a fair amount as well. I mean, in a weird way, it, it, it is, I mean, laptop is not ideal, but it, in a way it can give you sort of a front seat. You, I mean, sometimes I catch detail on, on the laptop that I don't. On yeah, the- you can kind of zone in into yeah. it a bit more. Yeah. So, I mean, the movies you have been seeing, um, first of all, I guess we could start with the selection of Woody Allen movies that you've been watching. Yeah. 
I wonder if you could say a bit about what brought you back to, to those movies. Although I guess I should say also that they're a selection, like not from whatever. The, the late, the late era, yeah. Exactly, late Woody. Yeah, I'm really, I've been getting really into late Woody because I've, I think 90s Woody is maybe my favorite. Mm-hmm like over the course of his career like I love I love 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 husbands and wives is maybe my favorite of all time and then um deconstructing Harry which is weirdly hard to find oh interesting right yeah Um, that's true it is weird it's some sort of I don't know gap I don't know why that is but it wasn't a popular movie at the time I sort of remember people didn't know how to take it well it has this really like punk kind of sensibility even the way he's styled is kind of like he wears that army jacket, kind of like Travis Bickley. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, and it's, it's extremely funny and like very subversive for what he, but what I like about particularly like the late era is that they're so like bright and comforting. Mm. Yeah. You know, like Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Midnight in Paris, Blue Jasmine. You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger is a weird one that I also saw recently. Yeah, I want, I want to get, in, get into that, definitely. Uh, but I mean, just to your point about things being very bright, I mean, it seems like he was, there's this long period where he's going to Europe a lot and he's, he's sort of using European uh, cinematographers. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been doing that his whole career, but like, I guess using like a, a, one of Moldovar's DPs, um, I think for... I forget which one, but one of the ones you chose. Yeah. Um, Mighty Aphrodite was on my list as well. And that was a Euro DP. Oh, yeah. I believe Carlo De Palma. Yeah. Who did like the Antonioni's and Mighty Aphrodite is beautiful. Yeah. But I, yeah, as I mentioned, because I primarily watch films on my laptop nowadays, um, I think... And because I am so like busy, I'm primarily watching films lately in the interest of like dissociating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I do find his late period movies to be very, very comforting. Yeah. What do you because, find comforting about it? Um, because Woody is so prolific that there's this, this freedom in the way that he generates work. Mm. And particularly as he gets older and he gets more and more detached I think he has less of an idea of like what's going on they're less like engaged with um they're less like realist Midnight in Paris being like Mm. the best example of that I think right (laughs) um but even in like Blue Jasmine the way that it like takes place in San Francisco but has no really regard for like what the lives of people in San Francisco are like, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the class, like her uh, her sister, because it's like um, streetcar. It's like a modern streetcar right. retelling. And like her sister, who's like the Stella proxy, is meant to be like poor, but still somehow lives in like one of the most like affluent cities in America. Like I, I like the total um, disregard for reality and the the singular pursuit of his like, interests and fixations it's it's funny that midnight in paris is is this kind of recursive look at uh you know nostalgia because his movies are are also just nostalgic i mean they're like frozen it's like he takes 
plots from like 1930s or 40s movies and, and yeah. doesn't, doesn't really change the locations much either. Everyone still has like these rolling places. Exactly. The, yeah, the clarity, the straightforwardness of the way in which the stories are told. Um, the exposition, the simplicity of the characters, the, the fiance in Midnight in Paris. You know, it's just this kind of like, why? Do, when are you going to stop working on your dusty old novel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, I don't know why I um, enjoy them so much. I mean, I even really like, um, I love Melinda and Melinda, actually, too. I was just going to mention that, I mean, speaking of, I seem to remember there's a certain amount of, like, real estate porn in that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that's mm -hmm. that's another one that's, yeah, just completely I, he had this whole string of where he was trying out i don't know like unconventional leading men in a way yeah totally jason biggs yeah <laughs> in anything else yeah yeah and i mean and and josh brolin is not i mean he's obviously but he's almost more he's almost had more become like a channeling character actor leading actor person yeah um, well what do you think of this phenomenon where woody allen casts people and then they somehow end up like being possessed by him or channeling him in a way yeah um i think well midnight in paris is interesting for that reason as well because i think owen wilson doesn't doesn't do that mm -hmm. yeah. i don't think he is able to access like nebbishness <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, but he is, yeah, uh, incredibly charming. Yeah, the movies where he doesn't quite do that are, are, are interesting because I think his voice is so distinct that it sort of infiltrates every part of performance and, and, the, and filmmaking for him. It is interesting that Owen Wilson there, he, he, he's an interesting actor for me because he like occupies some spot I mean, coming up in the 90s with like Bottle Rocket and mm -hmm. then somehow turning into a, like a star and uh, just one of these sort of surprising people that became ubiquitous. Um, but yeah, I don't know. He has, he, he's, he's a, a, a interesting actor to me because he's very good natured, mm -hmm. um, but in a way that's not simple. He has, a, he has like depth. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And he's great in it. Yeah. And just the, yeah, the premise of Midnight in Paris is so like silly, but charming. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's just a great idea. And it's a I, lot of fun. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. And I mean, I, I still laugh out loud when he's trying to explain his predicament to the surrealists and they're like, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the actor who plays Hemingway? That's a, um, it's a good question. I, he's uh, in a new movie. It's Corey, Corey Stoll. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. And he does a really good, good Hemingway. Yeah, he, he does it, he does it like just, you know, head on, not yeah. overdoing it. It just, he has to state every single, you know, ridiculously manly thing as if it's what he believes, which it is. Which is, yeah, kind of how Hemingway probably was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although there was that interesting New Yorker article about um, him and Gertrude Stein. Um, well, let's, uh, yeah, coming back to 
you will meet a tall dark stranger. Mm-hmm. That's one I, I, I have to admit, I didn't rewatch for this. Um, yeah. And, but no, not- it's a minor. Yeah. That's the other thing about Woody is he's so prolific that he allows, he like, I love a director that does a, a minor work. Oh yeah. You know? And he's yeah. got a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> and you will meet a tall dark stranger is, is definitely one of them. Yeah. I, I just, and then I tried to catch up on the plot a little and I could, it, I mean, it sounds almost comical on the page, all, everything that, that's happening. But. Yeah, it's got a lot of whimsy, almost like <laughs> a, yeah, like a play would. And the yeah. devices of like uh, him seeing the woman through his window and pining for her. There's a great, the twist at the end is it's once he like ruins his life and then by pursuing this woman who he's like spying on through a window and then um, when he's in a relationship with her, he looks back at his old place and starts to pine for his ex-wife. It's just a really great, like, woody punchline. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's sort of damned, damned no matter what you do, uh, either way. And Naomi Watts. And Naomi Watts. Is, is one of my favorite actresses. I don't know, I just, I've always really enjoyed her and enjoyed the trajectory of her career. And prior, have you ever seen um, the movie she made before Mulholland Drive, where she's like a struggling actress? Oh. It was this really like kind of middling indie movie. I think it was it was Australian, maybe. Ellie Some... Parker. Oh, I I did actually. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I did. I don't remember anything about it, but I did. Yeah. It's this really like indie kind of like wacky verite struggling actress comedy um, that she made prior to breaking out with Mulholland Drive. And that is really worth revisiting that I really, really like her in. Oh, wow. I, okay, I couldn't resist because I had a feeling that I had written about it and um, I probably shouldn't admit this, but a lot of times I write about something and then do not remember it all, but I did write about it. <laughs> you did? Oh, wow. I'll, I'll look into it. I, I don't know if it's worth it. It's pretty uh, early me, so I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's worth it. so, but Ellie Parker is, you know, it's yeah. a very early, early. <laughs> very handheld, I'm, I'm, I'm a very handheld sort of. Yes run and gun kind of thing yes and And chevy chase is in it yeah and she made it before mahalan drive but i think they released it after because i didn't think it i don't think it i might be wrong but i don't think it had a lot of like commercial viability right she wasn't like a formidable leading lady yeah yeah and i mean and then you have that amazing thing in Mulholland Drive that she performs her coming into stardom on on, with with that you know yeah yeah, it's very uh, meta. I know. Now we can't use that word anymore. It's terrible. Oh, because of oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> just, just take everything away. Can't have anything. Well, I don't. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to make you run through all of the the Woody Allenography um, because well, we can. <laughs> we can. <laughs> well, the one thing I'll say about Muddy Aphrodite is that I I definitely need to see that again, but I'm afraid to. It's the only movie. I remember walking out of in in, no. in college. I know it's terrible. It's fairly a terrible thing that I did. Really? Why? Why do you? I can't explain it. I think that's I was another just another one like deconstructing Harry. That's a little hard to find. Yeah, I mean, it was a dramatic gesture with nothing behind it, really, because I don't do that. I I sit. Yeah, I was. You don't often walk out of films. <laughs> do not. So I think I was just experimenting. 
Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it feels really good sometimes. Yeah. To just take control of, yeah. I walked out of, um, this is a little blasphemous because I actually do really like this one, but I walked out of Carol. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because I went to see it on my birthday and it was like, I just was kind of like, you know what? I'm going to hit the streets. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's a bit of a melancholy film for. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this, my life is, yeah, it's too valuable. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mighty Aphrodite is very interesting to me because um, it's about, well, he uses this really fun, like, Greek chorus device. Yeah. Um, but it's about, um, for those who don't know, about a couple who adopts a kid who's brilliant. And then Woody tries to find his real mother and discovers that she's this, like, bimbo prostitute. Um, played by Mira Servino, who he becomes, like, infatuated with. Yeah. Um, and she's gives a really strong performance. She's really, really funny in it. Um, but the motif, the theme of, of um, adoption is really interesting to me in this, in this era. Hmm. In yeah. light of, like, Mia Farrow. That's really interesting. And that crops up in Blue Jasmine, too, because I had forgotten that both Kate Blanchett's character and Sally Hawkins' character are adopted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mighty Aphrodite was, like, it was the first time, it was, rewatching it, yeah, kind of made me consider the creative inception or motivation for what he's, like, explore adoption, considering, like, the context of his relationship with with Mia Farrow. Yeah. And, and, and here. And Soon Yi. Right. No, I mean, that's the kind of elephant in the room now when, when talking about um, Woody Allen movies. I mean, for whatever reason, I, I have noticed that his movies have not come up on, on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I almost, yeah, I kind of was like, maybe don't. Um, but that's just, that is what I'm, what I'm watching. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's their comfort movies, comfort food movies to, to a large For me, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you know, I, I get that for some people, they're the exact opposite of comfort food movies. Yeah, right. <laughs> what do you make of the, the adoption um, kind of thread? Um, I don't know. I, just, I thought the, just the, the idea of, like, being preoccupied with the lineage of an adopted child hmm. sort of to the detriment of your your marriage was was, was interesting right um, but obviously it's not like linear I think there's a lot of narcissistic projection in, in Woody's movies and in a way maybe he ima- he imagines himself even as some kind of like orphaned genius I think I don't know not to psychoanalyze him too much but <laughs> I think that's a really interesting idea that for some reason I'm flashing to brother, brother from another planet. Um, uh-huh. And that idea of just being born and just arriving in totally different circumstances and being completely different from everyone around you, but the same in some ways. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I mean, and I mean, and then there are obviously the other threads that people pick up on in terms of resonating his life. And mm-hmm. I mean, one thing being, the age differences is, is one thing, but the more, more interesting to me was, I think I watched some late Woody Allen, I'm forgetting even which one, where the plot is basically he's, the main character is trying to convince everyone that like a younger character is lying. Oh. 
Um, Interesting. You don't remember which one? The titles kind of blur together for me. Like you could make, there could be like a Woody Allen title generator. Totally. Uh, yeah. They're especially, yeah, nowadays. I think Tim Heidecker like dashed off a sheet of them that are still <laughs> very funny to me. I actually still haven't watched um, Rainy Day in New York. Oh, well, it's on Amazon now, despite all the hue and cry about not yeah. having it. It's just there. Give the people what they want. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, I saw it at a festival in Vienna, and the crowd just went crazy for it. They loved it. They loved it. Yeah. It's odd. It's odd. <laughs> I, maybe we can jump. Actually, do you mind if we talk a bit about Scary? Just to sort Yeah, of definitely. No, I'd love to. Yeah, because... Because uh, I was thinking about it watching the Woody Allen movies I was catching, even though ironically they were set partly abroad, partly out of New York a lot. But mm, mm-hmm. one thing I really love about your movie is the location shooting. Because I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of new movies these days take place nowhere. Yes. And, and, that's, <laughs> and, that's, and that's part of what's so satisfying about 70s movies is that you can you can look at the background but you look at a background in a movie now it doesn't really mean or it's it's not even a back you know i mean i'm not yeah. against digital composites are a part of shooting but yeah there's it, there's no there there so i mean that that seems to be like that must have been a big part of doing the movie was just figuring out you know the, those locations and where you're shooting and it seems central to it yeah yeah and i think um part of that has to do with it being um a like a micro budget independent film um because i think when you when you work with those kinds of constraints place does become important because you have to sort of figure out what you have access to (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and what resources you can utilize to to tell a story so you for me at least it makes sense to kind of ground it in a location and to build a movie like around where it is. Um, and with scary, obviously the, the main location is, is the house and the movie is sort of constructed around that. Um, but I think when you get into more, yeah, contemporary high budget movies, it's very easy to, to forget about place or to feel like it's, it isn't important. What was that movie? Promising Young Woman came to mind when you mentioned that Mm -hmm. um one thing i found very frustrating about that film was that it was in did take place in this kind of like any town usa right um that made it feel very very disconnected especially so because it's it's kind of putting itself as this putting itself forth as like this very of the moment capturing the zeitgeist kind of movie yeah and yet it's nowhere um i mean i'm just curious how you sort of zeroed in on the, the particular areas. I, I have to sort of disclose here that I actually lived for a while in the neighborhood up there. On the Upper East Side? I did, yeah. yeah. And, and the coffee shop you use is actually a coffee <gasps> shop I used to use. Oh my God, cool. <laughs> that, was, that guy was really great, Charlie. There, yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember it being such a friendly place and they would play their own like CD mixes of music there. He was super down and really helpful. And he left his, um, cause scary takes place during Christmas. Uh, and we shot in, in January and he left his like Christmas decorations up oh. for us so that they like the decals on the windows and stuff. 
that's um, great. which was really nice. Yeah. Um, I, I love the Upper East Side and I was when me and my writing partner, Maddie Quinn, who's also in the film, uh, started writing it in September of 2019, we, um, started writing it on the roof of the 61st street Equinox, (laughs) (laughs) which is a really cool, is a really cool and special Equinox (laughs) because it used to be like a New York sports club in the eighties. And, um, they didn't really uh, remodel it in the kind of like black and gray Equinox aesthetic. It still has this very like 80s, like teal carpet. Um, and it feels a little like frozen in time. And a little, we used to, we actually called it Kubranox. <laughs> <laughs> because it had a very like, yeah, um, Shining-esque trapped in time quality. Um, and yeah, and obviously Epstein lived on the Upper East Side on 71st and in my like manic preoccupation with his life and death, I was spending a lot of time uptown and yeah, and that was, that was always like the, the, the going to be the the premise of the film that there would be this, this apartment. And then when I started working with my cinematographer, Hunter, um, the very first thing we shot our like day zero, our like B-roll, Hunter Zimney and I went out and shot like all those, all that gargoyle stuff. And when you were really attentive to it, you realized how many like weird satanic gargoyles are in affluent communities. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty creepy and and, and hiding in plain sight is is the feeling you get when when you look at that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's such a curious neighborhood, too, because it's this combination of, I mean, in some ways, really well-preserved, quote-unquote, old New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but also this kind of churn of, like, post-collegiate, I don't know, maybe more people like post-collegiate who are in finance or something like that now. But, I mean, just kind of churn of people coming through because, I don't know, I, I, I remember that there were often sort of weird bargains you could find tucked yeah. away. Yeah, because it's not like a coveted neighborhood. Right. I yeah, I look I looked at some apartments on the on the Upper East Side when I was when I was apartment hunting. But you didn't. <laughs> I hope you didn't have this particular experience. No, of, no, 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 no. I did not. <laughs> um, but did you did you do like did, when you kind of were in the throes of of Epstein's saga, the Epstein saga? Mm-hmm. Were you doing kind of like detective? work did you visit that the the building like before even the movie yes yeah um i visited the the townhouse you mean yeah 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 i went to the townhouse when he got arrested um the first time and then i um the day he died i was living because i did i lived downtown and i lived very close to the the prison where he died like half a mile away or something. And so I, the day he died, I went to the prison and there was all these kind of like sleuthy, independent journalists there um, who told me I should try and go to, who were like already talking about like the decoy, the fake body. So then I went 
to the hospital. <laughs> and then I went to the coroner's office, which was obviously oh, wow. um, a dead end. And then I ended up going to the townhouse and then to the, like, the apartment complex that his brother owns on 66. So I did kind of that loop that, that day that he died, oh. um, which was obviously completely futile <laughs> uh, and motivated by a manic fixation of sorts. And that is kind of the, the thesis of, of Scary is the, the futility of that kind of investigation. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's another thing I really liked was that, and, and found fascinating about the movie, the, the kind of feverishness of it, but also, I mean, in a way it's kind of, you know, overwrought because it, it takes, you know, elements of genre films. But on the other hand, I kind of relate, relate to, I mean, why wouldn't one be totally feverishly just driven one out of one's mind about this? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I agree, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it, <laughs> at certain points I was like, well, that's just kind of realistic because that is pretty maddening and crazy making. Yeah, I mean, I when I went to the prison, I thought there would be people like protesting, you know? Right. I was like, no way. I was like, this is such a crazy slap in the face. Like, surely yeah. people will be like up in arms about yeah. the fact that he allegedly committed suicide in a high security prison. But that was not the case. But then obviously, like, Epstein didn't kill himself became this really like powerful meme that, you know, refers refers to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the strange thing about events like that, like that killing is that there are things where, I don't know, I'm only familiar with through movies. So mm -hmm. I don't have like any real world example of where something like that actually happened. You know, so this is, it's almost like when people watch a news event like that, there's no like real life, you know, there's no example of how that actually could, it's like, it's too new people. It's like with, <laughs> mm. You know, like with September 11th, like you have no corollary to that. So people just said it was like a movie. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, it's unprecedented. And I, yeah, on, because this year was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Of um, I was watching a lot of like 9-11 media. And that was a, yeah, a refrain that, that people kept invoking was like, this is like a movie. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you have the line in, uh, in Scary of 61st. Um, this is our 9-11. Yeah, exactly. Total paradigm shift. <laughs> yeah, that's another line where it's, I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of funny, but I, I get it as well. Um, mm -hmm. Just the sign of thing that crystallizes everything in a way. Um, but I mean, could you talk about that a bit? Like, you know, this kind of nice edge of humor, but also just intensity of emotion in the movie? Yeah. I mean, the humor really came out of me and Maddie's, I think, natural voice and our like collaboration as like as as writing partners. And I think we knew we knew that it would be funny, that it would be like it would have camp elements. Um, we're both really big fans also of like Todd Solins. Mm. Um, and when we were like attempting to finance the film, that was something that we were kind of like, you know, was one of our like references that we were trying to like contextualize, like why, why the film read the way that it did. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, at the same time, you know, the, like the horror of the, of the Epstein stuff is also really real. 
and did feel very real to me at the time. Cause I was also, I was traveling a lot to, to Thailand at the time. Cause I was shooting this Netflix show, the serpent in Bangkok. Oh wow. Um, so I was also very jet lagged through scripting and pre-production. Um, but going, spending time in Bangkok, which is also this like sex trafficking hub. Right. Um, and that's, that's was really like the, you know, the most, the most horrifying aspect of the Epstein stuff is the, is the trafficking is the like preoccupation with like human enslavement. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, it gave me this sort of psychedelic jet lag, like global perspective on, on power that was all like synthesizing into what I was trying to say with, with the movie. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's terrifying. And I even, I, I have come, grown to dislike the term human trafficking because I think it distances us in a way from this, yeah, this enslavement that is yeah. The, yeah. The, heart, the heart of it. All right. So it's clicking us off in a second. If I'm a fellow podcaster, so I know. Yes, I know. This, <laughs> this is why this is all so interesting because I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm driving a car and, you know, like a race car driver is in the passenger seat. Uh, <laughs> But um, we, so yeah, we were just talking about the global uh, trade and enslavement, as you do. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, I think, one movie that came to mind and and that you've talked about in interviews in relation to the scary of 61st, I think is sort of a a central influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Eyes Wide Shut. Um, Yes, Eyes Wide Shut. The, I mean, I guess... I don't know if there's a spoiler potentially maybe to say that the film takes place in the eyes wide shut extended universe. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's suggestive enough without being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean that, that's, you know, that obviously is, is really resonant and actually a little bit also what we were talking about with locations because eyes wide shut is a movie where, the artifice is heightened and people knocked it for that. Um, yeah. But in yeah. that case, I think it's actually effective, this kind of weird, like walking through a, a dreamland city. Yeah. People really didn't get Eyes Wide Shut when it came out. I think it was very ahead of its time. And um, in the aftermath of the Epstein stuff, it, there were a lot of like think pieces being penned and um, it, also was like around the 20th, I think it was the 20th year anniversary um, of that movie coming out that I think it re-entered the zeitgeist in this really productive way. And people could kind of see it for what it was really about, which wasn't, um, you know, this like marital drama, but that like all of Kubrick's movies was actually about power. Mm, Yeah. What what's another Kubrick movie you think that kind of snakes into that as well? Well, Clockwork Orange, yeah, is about you know ideology, but they all are about sort of power in their own way. Yeah, I guess. No, I mean, and even like one of the signature kind of Kubrick shots is kind of like the submission camera angle that he uses in like every other movie. Um, mm-hmm. Very much, you know, evokes that, but it. A Clockwork Orange reminds me that I think you said one movie that you had seen for the first time this year is 2001. Well, I saw it for the first time in theaters. Oh, in theaters. Okay. Yeah. 
um, I saw it a month ago or so at um, the Museum of Moving Image because they had a little like um, exhibit retrospective about it. That was great. I went to that. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. Um, and I had seen it before, um, but probably like um, in college when I was like really stoned. Um, uh, so seeing it like on at, at, in a movie theater was amazing, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> really the way it's meant to be seen. Yeah, it's kind of funny with that museum. I always felt that their lobby is kind of modeled after a set in 2001. Totally, yeah. But yeah, but it's, they're an interesting pair to think of him making 2001 and then so soon after that, A Clockwork Orange, which is this totally, you know. D- Nasty, yeah. Yeah, and, and just grotty or whatever. That mm-hmm. sounds mild, but yeah, grotesque vision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the scary thing also about the, the scare of 61st is that it's, it's almost about the future that's embedded in the present in a way, like the, the reality of, I don't know, kind of increased just commodification of people. Um, mm-hmm. But that, that actually in some sense is happening now already. Yeah. And, and sort of the, the powerlessness in the, in the face of those forces and the, what is that quote that's like, the only sane response is to like be insane. Right. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, th- you know, that sort of made me think of sort of other conspiracy type mm. movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way I felt like, I think you might've mentioned in an interview, but demon lover, just the connectivity of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love demon lover. I love, um, there's also this Abel Ferrara, New Rose Hotel. Oh yeah. Which I kind of think of when I think of Demon Lover as well. It's like, I love movies that try and tell a really like expansive story in this small way. Mm -hmm. Um, Like global espionage, but it's really like people talking in bathrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He still has, I think his, his version of body snatchers is, is pretty, is pretty, you know, high up there for me. Um, even though it's kind of small scale in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to just get to uh, one or two other movies um, that you mentioned on, yeah. on, your, on your list. And one of them, it was kind of a cathartic choice just because it has such revolutionary possibility. And that's uh, the Paul Schrader movie. Um, mm-hmm. Mishima, uh, A Life in Four Chapters. What did you make of that? Or, and how did you come upon it? Um, I... I got really into Schrader over like the pandemic. I um, watched, I'm not in chronological order, but I loosely chronologically watched all his films and then watched Mishima last Mm -hmm. because I know he considers it to be like his, his masterpiece. Um, And that's kind of a comforting movie for me in a weird way as well. Cause I, I really enjoy the, score and the cinematography and I think I think about Mishima um Mm. as a figure a lot um and I think that Schrader's preoccupation with Mishima is also also very interesting yeah because Schrader is so cerebral I guess and kind of like disembodied similar to Kubrick in a way Mm -hmm. like they have this like meticulousness or something and yeah. so I think it's interesting that, 
Well, yeah, Mishima is also a perfect, it makes total sense that Schrader would be infatuated with, with Yukio Mishima because he is this, like, he loves this, like, solitary, suicidal <laughs> figure. But yeah. Mishima is also, you know, so, so embodied. Yeah. And it's, a, it's an interesting way to, to tell that story. And, you know, scary is, like, an homage to Kubrick. Um, but in no way is it like like a Kubrick film, really. Yeah, I mean, and Mishima is very like. It's just interesting to see an artist like Schrader interpreting the life and work of someone like Mishima, who I think works in such a different, visceral way. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. I mean, it's. I mean, there's almost like a some, a movie like that. Almost has a fantasy quality because it's, you know, if you were a truly fully realized creator. Uh, you know, the the kind of creative force you exert on the page, you, you could also exert in the world somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I'm not saying that's true, but uh, so there's something that uh, Schrader seems attracted to in that, in that yeah. Kind of idea. Um, yeah. But at the same time, as you said, he's so uh, embodied um, in that movie that it's also just feels like a reflection of just, I don't know, just, existence the the problem of like what's going on in our head and what we can actualize yeah and filmmaking is a way for him to almost like inhabit a body yeah Uh, have you seen card counter yet or i have yeah Yeah. i loved it but i love like i love schrader so much i'm so happy to see him like play the hits you know (laughs) (laughs) i'm like could watch him remix those themes forever yeah. And the Abu Ghraib stuff was just, I loved how tenuous the connection was with Abu Ghraib and like the rest <laughs> of the film. And he's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just has these preoccupations that he's going to pursue regardless. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's, that was one thing that was really interesting for me was, I mean, who, who, who has made a movie, like a fictional drama that wasn't like a returning soldier drama that brings in that history and the trauma of that? I, yeah. I, I sort of felt like that was big and people didn't really mention that. Um, but making a movie about fresh history, I mean, that's also something that you're doing with Scary 61st in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of the, the ink is still wet on, on the news on that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a way of, well, yeah. With me and Scary, I thought, like, I just didn't want the, the emotional reality of the Epstein saga to get kind of diluted or whitewashed. And so the film was a, was a, attempts to be like a testament to that yeah and card counter is 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 similar it's about yeah, the the toll of abu Ghraib on the stain on like the american legacy yeah but that i think has to do with a lot of how you know it, was, it really wasn't marketed as a <laughs> abu Ghraib movie no, it wasn't. You think I think it's about poker. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. I forget what the tagline, but the tagline could have been, yeah, some 70s poker movie. Reap but, what you sow. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which is weird, because I think his next movie is called, like, The Gardener or something, and I was like, should have saved it. <laughs> That's true. Well, we should have him on, on, on your podcast at some point. I, I mean, he would be pretty... We have been trying to. Oh, really? We've been courting him for a bit, but Focus, I don't think, was so, so keen on it. So we were going to attempt to circle back. Yeah. 
get him on his uh, between movie time and um, yeah <laughs> he yeah I, I I talked with him for a little bit and it was just yeah he kind of went on about apparently how unhappy he was about can he would he oh. would like he would like grumble but he like can <laughs> <laughs> I love his voice yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah no card counter. Also just taking an actor like Oscar Isaac and just, just like turning down the heat on him. So mm. it's, it's so bold, you know, I and mean, he's, mm-hmm. he's like, he's like sort of PTSD shut down for most of that movie as a character. Yeah, totally. All right. So I've, I've dutifully run through. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I think <laughs> we've covered, yeah. covered everything. Um, I do want to just give a mention that you, Vortex was another movie you had seen, um, which mm-hmm. I thought was pretty cool and seems in keeping, I guess, we've had a sort of morbid bent to this. But what, what was it that kind of struck you about that film? Um, well, I'm a really big fan of Climax. It's one of my favorite movies, mm. the, previ- like the previous Gaspar Noe. And um, Vortex was the only thing I saw at New York Film Festival because I was traveling a bit. Um, I thought it was... Uh, departure <laughs> you know from his from his usual style but I thought it was like I mean Dario Argento is amazing in it mm-hmm. and the have you seen it yes I did yeah <laughs> um the cinematography is yeah really really impressive and it's impressive to see Noe well he had a brain hemorrhage you know yeah um right about that after so he was um it's him really like reckoning with death in a way that he hasn't before um and I kept waiting for there to be this kind of like Noe-esque like enfant terrible like twist or something like depraved happens (laughs) um and I really admired yeah how like restrained and contained and mature it was yeah yeah I mean in the way the most horrifying thing he does I won't give it away, but it has to do with locations. Um, mm-hmm. That that montage, um, yeah, it's as scary as any like bloodbath you could have. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and the te- the tension throughout, I think, of like him knowing the expectations of him as a filmmaker mm-hmm. and subverting them, is cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we can probably Thank you. bring yeah. us in for landing. One other thing, I just want to mention, it didn't come up. I thought it might come up, but uh, I'm a big fan of Wobble Palace. Uh, another location-based uh i almost brought it up but i didn't know if you had seen but that's another movie that was made with like the principal location being the like force through which the script was written and stuff yeah the house mm-hmm. no that that's that's a, that's a great great movie um, thank you yeah so yeah the scary of 61st thank you dasha for taking thank time you. to talk about what you've been watching appreciate of it of course thanks for having me this is great bye You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. Thank you.